Well, I'm so glad that you're here tonight. And I, I really do get excited each week as getting ready, preparing uh, to lead this time with you. Tonight I want to talk about strategies to improve your Bible reading. Just some strategies you can use to improve your Bible reading. So far we've looked at basic structure and, of the Bible. And we've looked at the basic story, the, the narrative, the master narrative of both the Old and the New Testament. And then last week, we began to examine the text itself. We began to examine the details of the text as we talked about the work of observation. And I asked you last week that to take your Bible reading plan and just make 20 observations each day as you read a chapter a day through the Gospel of Luke. And so I hope that you're doing that, that you've done that and continue to do that process. Again, just to develop that that idea of observation, just to develop that discipline of doing observation. You know, to, to put that in context for you and to help you to see where we're going uh, in, this, in this course, there basically are through three crucial steps to take in Bible study. The first one is, of course, observation. That's the first basic step of Bible study, asking the question, what do I see? Then the second step is interpretation. Here you ask the question, what does it mean? And then the third step is application. Here you ask the question, how does it work? So let me tell you what we're going to do tonight and give you a little bit of an idea of what we're going to do next Sunday night, Lord willing. Tonight we're going to dig a little bit deeper in that first step of observation. Talked about observation last week. Tonight we're going to continue to talk about observation because it is so crucial in the Bible study process. The more observations you make, the more likely you are to be accurate in your interpretation and your application. And so, tonight we're going to dig a little deeper into observation and give you some practical strategies on how to read your Bible a little bit better and how to make some of those observations. Then next week, we're going to move to the second step in the Bible study process, the step of interpretation. When we move next week to the step of interpretation, that's when we start walking a little bit towards the deep end of the pool, if you will. Because next week we'll be dealing with this word, hermeneutics. Uh, That's when we're going to get a little bit into the deeper water, if you will. And uh, I hope that you'll stay with us because it's going to be a challenge for you next week, but it's going to be a good challenge. And... um, You'll learn a lot more about how do you take this word, and now that I've made observations, what do I do with it? How do I interpret these things that I have found in Scripture? So that's kind of where we're heading uh, tonight and next week. Now, I want to tell you a little story real quick. Uh, There is a girl that I was dating back in college. I can't can't give you her name, Um, but she, she was from Maryland. The reason I can't give you her name is I've been instructed, don't you use my name anymore for a while. You've talked about me enough. So, so there was this girl I was dating in college who lived in Maryland. And so at summer break, here's what happened. At summer break, uh, she would go home for the summer. And I was in Tennessee. She was in Maryland. And so every so often, this pretty little girl from Maryland uh, would send me a letter. Do, you, do y'all remember letters? I mean, do people still even write letters? You know, I guess some of you do, but, but she would occasionally send me a letter. And I'll tell you something. Every time I got a letter in the mail, I did three things with it. You don't have to take notes on this, but every time I got a letter from her in the mail, I did three things with it. First thing is I read it repeatedly. 
I never, ever read her letters just one time. I read her letters over and over and over. Help me here. Why do you think I read her letters more than once? Didn't want to miss anything. Yeah, that's a good one. What else? I liked what she said. Do what? Making sure I understood what she said. Those are very good answers. Very good. And you know what? And I also like who wrote the letter. So I, I read it repeatedly. Number two, I always read her letters carefully. I read it slowly. I was looking for clues. Trying to find out what she's doing and how she's doing and how she feels about me. And, you know, so I would look for things. I, I kind of tried to read between the lines. I read it carefully. And then number three, I read it joyfully. Here's what I mean by that. Not one time did I ever fail to read a letter from her. Not one time did I get a letter in the mail and, and lay it aside and think, well, I'll get to that tomorrow. Not one time did my parents have to say, have you read your letter from Lisa? To, um, have you read your letter from... <laughs> have you read your letter from that girl from Maryland today? Not one time. Reading her letters always made me smile. Reading her letters always made me happy because it was my way, listen, it was my way of connecting with her. Did you know that when you read your Bible, God wants to connect with you? I was in Tennessee, she was in Maryland, but through that process of reading this letter, I could connect with her. Your heavenly Father is in heaven. You're here in Powdersville or wherever you're watching. But even then, if we read this letter he's written us correctly, we can connect with him and he wants to speak to us. So, here's what we want to do tonight. I want to give you some helpful habits, if you will, that you can use as you read your Bible. Some ways that you can perhaps improve your Bible reading Now, I'll give you basically the principle, and I'll try to illustrate the principle for you. And these will sound a little bit simple, but they are, again, strategic. Remember, we're kind of in the shallow end of the pool, but next Sunday night, we're moving to the deeper waters, okay? But these are still so very important and so very, very practical. So let me give you three ways to uh, improve your Bible reading. Number one, here's the first one. Read the passage multiple times in multiple translations. I can't tell you how practical that is and how many times I've used that. When you're teaching the Bible or you're preaching on Sunday mornings and you're taking the text, you want to make sure you understand it. I can't tell you how many times I've done this, reading the Bible multiple times in multiple translations. You see, whenever you're studying a Bible passage, it is essential to read it more than once. If you're taking notes, write that that down, that simple statement. It is essential to read it More than once. Read it slowly several times. I would also suggest that you try reading it out loud with expression. Here's the problem when you try to read it silently. There's nothing wrong with reading it silently, but one of the problems when you're trying to read the text silently is that you you skim over the words sometimes. You miss the details when you skim over the words. You're missing the details. Because you're just kind of skimming it as you read. 
So try reading it out loud and reading it with expression. Here's another, uh, this is still under number one, but another bullet point is, listen to the passage on your phone or your computer. Let somebody else read it to you. Just listen to it. It takes time and repetition for words to sink in. So listen to it. Let somebody else read it to you. Here's another bullet point. If possible, read the entire book in one sitting. If you were, if you were reading a novel... If you were reading a novel, I doubt that you would start out in chapter 6. And yet, if you're teaching something, perhaps you're a BSF teacher and you're teaching, let's say, Luke chapter 6, sometimes that's where we start. Luke chapter 6. What about the other five chapters that Luke wrote before that? Don't you think it'd be a good idea to read those two to get an idea of what was leading up to Luke chapter 6? You don't read a novel starting in the sixth chapter. You start at the beginning. So here's my point. If you're trying to understand God's Word, one of the ways to read the Bible better, if possible, read the entire book in one sitting. Here's another bullet point. Read a passage in multiple translations. Read a passage in multiple translations. I, I, I know that I've kind of mentioned that, but I just want to make this point. Uh, let me, give you a, let me give you an illustration. Uh, Job chapter 36, verse 33. Don't turn there. I'm going to put it on the screen. Job that chapter 36, verse 33. Do you know what this verse says? Anybody know Job 36, 33? All right. So here's, here's what it says. We're going to put it up there in the King James Version. Job 36, 33 says, The noise thereof showeth concerning it, the cattle also concerning the vapor. Really? Did you, did you, I'm going to get in trouble. Let me go on. Um, there's nothing wrong with the King James Version. That's not my point. My point is to not make fun of the King James Version. I was raised on the King James Version, and most of the verses that I've memorized over the years are in the King James language. So I'm not making any kind of critical remarks about King James. My point is, if you're reading the text and you can't understand it, try to read it in another translation. Because when I read this verse, I'm like, do what? Something about cow vapor or something. I don't know what that means. And so I read it in another translation. And the other translation says, New American Standard, its thundering voice declares his presence, the livestock also concerning what is coming up. Okay, that helps. I'm getting a little bit better idea. Well, the idea is to read it in multiple translations. And so I read it in the NIV. And the NIV says, His thunder announces the coming storm. Even the cattle make known its approach. Now I'm starting to get the idea of what the verse means. So when you come to a passage of Scripture, don't just say, oh, I don't understand that. When you come to a passage of Scripture, just keep reading the verse or passage in different translations. Now you might say, well, Pastor, I don't have all these Bibles that you have in your library. Yeah, but if you have a phone and you've got a computer, you've got access to it. Let me give you a website that you need to go to if you haven't already. It's called BibleGateway.com. I don't sell for Bible Gateway. I don't get any kickbacks from Bible Gateway. I'm just telling you, this is a good place for you to go. There's a lot of Bible resources at BibleGateway.com. And one of the resources that are there is that you can read... Every translation known to mankind probably is listed there. And you also have a button you can click and read them parallel. 
side by side. And it's, it's a free website. You don't have to pay for it. So BibleGateway.com will allow you to read the Bible in multiple translations. All right, so here's some habits to help us be a better student of the Word, reading the Bible, as we said, in multiple translations. And here's number two. Read carefully and notice the details. That's the principle, but let me illustrate it for you. Read carefully and notice the details. Here's what I mean by that. When you come to the Bible... Look up here for a moment, please. When you come to the Bible, put your thinking cap on. When you come to the Bible, watch this. Listen, don't throw your mind into neutral. I've been there. I've done it. I know what it's like to open the Bible and read it because I'm supposed to be reading it. Because that's what good Christians do. They open their Bible and they read it every day. And I know what it's like to read it, but I'm not really reading it. I'm, reading, I'm looking at it, but I'm not really trying to absorb it. Don't throw your mind in neutral. Pay attention as you read. And if you pay attention as you read, you will notice details that you hadn't seen before. Or you will notice details that will bring the text to life. I'll give you an example from my own personal reading. Go with me to the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> the Gospel of Mark, I noticed something that Jesus, about Jesus as I was reading through the Gospel of Mark. Again, this is one of the values of reading the entire book in one sitting, is that you start noticing things, whereas if you're only reading a few verses here and a few verses there, or even a chapter at a time, you may not notice it. But if you try to read the book in one sitting, many times you can pick up on details that you would have missed otherwise. So read carefully And notice the details. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. I was just reading the first chapter and I came to verse 16. And here's what I read. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew cast in a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And so, we talked about that today. We're not going to get into that. I just want you to notice, where was Jesus walking? He was walking by the Sea of Galilee. All right? So I just note that. I'm go, I go on into chapter 2, verse 3. Once again, verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went outside beside the lake or the Sea of Galilee. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. And so I noted that. Now, wait a minute. It was talking to him in chapter 1 how he's walking by the lake. Now in chapter 2, what's he doing? He's walking by the lake. I kept reading through Mark and I came to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. I'm starting to pick up on something here. I'm starting to pick up on this detail that Jesus apparently liked to spend time around the lake. Liked to spend time around the Sea of Galilee. For those of you who have been there, it is a beautiful place. It, it's, I remember the first time I ever saw the Sea of Galilee personally, and when I came over the, the top of the hill and, and I saw the Sea of Galilee, it absolutely was stunning. And it's still to this day is one of my top two or three places in all of Israel to go. I love, love, love being around the Sea of Galilee. And apparently, apparently Jesus liked it too. I wonder why. What was it about the Sea of Galilee that made him go for walks by the Sea of Galilee? Made him hang out by the Sea of Galilee. 
So I came to chapter 4, verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. Mark keeps telling us again and again, and Jesus is by the lake. So I come to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 31 and 32. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Now, don't read any further. Jesus, the disciples were worn out. They, they give this report and they're just worn out for ministry. It's a long, tiring experience that they've just encountered. And Jesus said, guys, guys, we need to take some time away. We need to go and rest. Where do you suppose he went? Very next verse. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So they went away by themselves in a boat across the Sea of Galilee somewhere to a solitary place. Now, let me just pause there for a minute and say, that did not lead me to some big theological discovery. But it did give me some insight into the life of Jesus. It did give me some insight into the way that he handled ministry. That it seems that he, 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 he found this place of refuge, the Sea of Galilee. He seemed to enjoy time around the lake and on the lake. And now, because I found this in Scripture, I can make a better case to Lisa that we need to buy a boat. It's right there in Scripture. I'm just going to be like Jesus and be on the lake. Now, that's why I need next week's Bible study on interpretation because I'm not interpreting the Scripture correctly. Here's my point. Read carefully. And notice the details. Let me give you three suggestions that will help you to read carefully and notice the details. Here's the first one. Number one, work with one book for a month. Work with one book for a whole month. In a month's time, you can read most of the books of the Bible two or more times. Most of them, you can read them several times in a month. It's quite easy to read a lot of the books of the Bible multiple times in a month. You can out, during that month... As you're reading repeatedly, you can outline the book, you can define key terms, you can investigate the central characters, you can do some background work, you can know the main theme of the book. I mean, as you deal with that book, day after day, week after week, week for an entire month, you begin to understand that book like you never would before. You begin to notice the details you wouldn't have noticed before. Now, one book a month may not seem like a whole lot to you, but imagine if you did that in a year's time, you could actually master 12 books of the Bible. In a year's time, you could say, I've kind of got a handle on these 12 books. I I, I really understand them. I know what's in them. I've got an outline in my mind because I've read it so many times. I've, I've got an outline in my mind of that particular book. So one of the way to one of the ways to read carefully and notice the details is to take one book. And read it through multiple times in the month. I've done that several times, many times. I've gone through books of the Bible like that and just read it and read it and read it and read it the entire month. Here's a second idea that will help you. is zoom in and zoom out. Start with a wide-angle approach to the passage. If you've got a passage of Scripture, watch this. I would suggest that, that you start with the big picture. In other words, here's what I do sometimes. 
especially if you've got a study Bible. If you're going to, to maybe teach something from the book of Ephesians, or you're just reading for your own benefit from the book of Ephesians, don't start with that passage of Scripture. But start with understanding the letter. Start with, if you've got a study Bible, look at the recipients of the letter, when it was written, who wrote it, what's the theme of the letter. Just try to zoom out and get the big picture before you read anything in the letter. Get the big picture of, of who wrote the letter, why, when, and all that kind of thing. Then look at the outline of the book. Again, if you've got a study Bible, you'll have an outline there. That way you can, you can look at the entire letter and you can see the outline of how the book flows, how the, the material goes through the book. Then you can look at your passage of Scripture. You can zoom in on it. And when you zoom in on it, then you have a better idea of why that passage is there. And sometimes then you can zoom back out. Watch this. Sometimes when you zoom back out, you don't zoom out and look at the whole book again, but you might zoom out and look at that chapter. Or zoom out and look at the chapter before that text. So zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out. Trying to get the overall context will really help you to read the Bible carefully and notice the details. Number three, be patient in two ways. Be patient with the text and be patient with yourself. Sometimes we can get so excited about something we think we can master it in no time. And we jump in with both feet and we're going to, you know, we're going to master that. We're going to understand. We're going to study the Bible. Can I say something to you? And you'll see this really clearly next week. Bible study is hard work. Now you may not believe that. Bible study is work. And you will really begin to see that next week. So, here's what I'm asking you to do as you're reading and looking for the details, as you're reading carefully, be patient. Be patient with the text. You'll understand it eventually. The truth is there. Sometimes you have to dig it to get it out. So, be patient with the text. Keep working at it. But also be patient with yourself. There'll be words you don't understand. There'll be terms you can't figure out. There'll be situations and and. and all those kind of things that you'll struggle with and it'll seem so weird when we start doing hermeneutics. You won't even know what that word is and it's like, well, I, don't, I don't get this. What, this seems too complicated. Just be patient with the text and be patient with yourself. Now, this is where we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. Here's the third way to help you read the Bible better. Uh, number three is this. Read the passage with discernment and sensitivity. We're going to go a little bit deeper now. Make sure you take good notes. Read the Bible with discernment and sensitivity. There's a key question I want you to ask, and that question is, what is the author doing with what the author is saying? What is the author doing with what the author is saying? Some refer to this as pericopal theology. Pericopal theology. A pericope is a unit of thought or a single story. Or to put it in another way, it's a manageable chunk of the Bible text. That's a pericope. A pericope is a, is a, a passage of Scripture. So pericopal theology asks the question, what do we learn about God in this text? All right, so 
walk with me through this. Today, my text, if I remember, I'm going on memory now, but today my text, I think, was Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. I believe that's right. We'll say it is. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. That was my pericope. That was my chunk of scripture. That was my single thought of the text. Remember what that word means, pericope. It means a unit of thought, a single story. So that was my pericope today. Now the question is, what do we learn about God in this chunk of Scripture? What do we learn about God as we read this Bible text? It's important to remember that the writer of a given biblical text is leading us on a journey and has a purpose in his writing. Make sure you hear that. It's important to remember the writer of a given biblical text is leading us on a journey and has a purpose in his writing. Let me illustrate this for you. Would you take your Bibles and go with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, the chapter concludes with Jesus calming the superstorm on the Sea of Galilee. Now, Lord willing, I plan to preach this uh, story in a couple of weeks, not from Mark, but from the Gospel of Luke. And so we're not going to get too deep in it tonight, since I'm going to be turning to Luke's account and preaching from that in a couple of weeks. But I do want to just kind of read through the story with you. Mark describes this, what we might call a superstorm, this way, beginning in verse 37. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Now, remember the question is, what is the author doing with what the author is saying? So he tells us in verse 37 about this furious squall. Notice the words that he uses here to describe the storm. He described the storm as a furious squall. What does that word, talk to me for a moment, what does that word furious mean to you? And I'm not looking for a particular answer, I'm just looking for your insight. If you see that word, a furious squall, what does that word furious say to you? Intense. Anything else? Huh? High wind. Notice in verse 37, a furious squall came up. In other words, it was all of a sudden. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So it was high wind and the waves, the waves were high. So high that they were coming up over the boat. Now, you always want to ask questions as you read the text. And my question would be, where is Jesus? Look at verse 38 and tell me where Jesus is. He's on the boat. Where on the boat? In the stern. Anybody know where the stern is or what the stern is? It's the back of the boat. Absolutely. So Jesus is in the back of the boat. And what is Jesus doing? He's asleep. I'm not going to get into that because I'm going to save that for a couple of weeks from now. But that's interesting. In the middle of the storm, this furious squall. Now remember, more than likely, this boat did not have a canopy over it. So with the wind and the waves and the rain, he's back there sleeping. 
He's a sound sleeper, okay. Now, you know the story, but in verse 39, or verse 38 rather, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, and the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, notice how they, again, we're looking at, we're making observations. How did they refer to Jesus? They referred to him as teacher. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, do you think they asked that question uh, kind of just casually? Or did they ask that question in a different way? How would, how would you think they would ask that question? In a panic, yes. Probably screaming in a panic. Now, when Jesus woke up, he got up, according to the next verse, and he didn't speak to them first. They said, don't you care that we're going to drown? And they're screaming perhaps in a panic. And he didn't speak to them. Verse 39, he got up. He rebuked the wind. And he said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down. And it was completely calm. Now, again, I don't want to get too far into that because we're going to get into that in a couple of weeks and I love that story. And, and I love being on the Sea of Galilee when we read, actually, we read that story and, and I talk about the wind and the waves and everything and then all of a sudden, the wind was completely calm. How did the disciples respond? Did they say, boys, we're not going to die today? Is that how they responded? Look at verse 41. How did they respond? They were terrified. We'll get into this a little bit in a couple of weeks. They were terrified of the storm. Now they're terrified of something else. They were terrified and they asked each other. They had a question. They were talking to one another about what was the question. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, let that question just hang there in the air for a moment. We'll come back to it. Unfortunately, this is where we usually let the story come to an end. Unfortunately, because that's the end of chapter 4, we think that's the end of the story. But remember pericopal theology? Chapter 5 is actually part of the story of chapter 4. You see, the chapter breaks and the verses were added to the text long after they were written and they were added for our benefit to help us organize the text and to reference the text. But sometimes the chapter breaks and even the verses sometimes tend to interrupt the flow of the story. So let me just ask you, look at the last sentence in chapter 4. Notice how this, how this chapter ends. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So here is this question. Who is this? And it's just kind of hanging in the air and the chapter ends. Who is this? Now Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples went on across the lake to the regions of the Gerasenes. In chapter 5, that's the story. They continue the journey across the lake. The story continues. 
And they met a man who was possessed by demons. Verses 1 through 5 describe this man possessed by demons and all the agony he had been through. And then in verse 6 and 7, he sees Jesus. And he responds to Jesus. Actually, the demon responds to Jesus. And I want you to notice the words of the demon. Verse 6 and 7. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? You see, the disciples had asked the question, Who is this? And the demon answers the question. You're Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. Mark is connecting these two stories into a single story. It really is one single story. Now what Mark is portraying is, let me tell you who Jesus is. The disciples were wondering, who is this man? And the demon answers the question, he's Jesus. He's the Son of the Most High God. So read the passage with discernment. Read the passage with sensitivity. And ask that key question. What is the author doing with what the author is saying? Let me give you another example of this. Uh, Take your Bibles. Go to the Old Testament this time. And go with me to Psalm 19. I want to illustrate for you what the author is doing with what the author is saying. Psalm 19. Psalm 19, a beautiful psalm, and it begins this way in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. If you're reading through this, you should begin to pick up these, these key words. Words like declare and proclaim and speech and voice and language. That ought to be grabbing your attention. What is the author doing with what the author is saying? As we begin to read through this Psalm of David, David is using these words. And they're all related to to revealing something, to speaking something. So let's read it again and be looking for those kind of words. The heavens declare, there's one of them, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens He's pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from His pavilion, like a champion running to uh, uh, rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. In the first part of the psalm, as we're reading through that, we we begin to see that David is making the case that God reveals himself to us through nature. That God reveals who he is through nature. David said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. There's no speech or language where the voice is not heard. In other words, David is saying, God speaks to us through nature. 
Now, if you ever doubt this, all you've got to do is to go sit and watch a sunrise or sit and watch a sunset. Sit there silently and watch that occur and it will speak to you about the existence and the presence and the power of God. And I love that verse that says, there is no speech or language where His voice is not heard. God speaks through nature all around the world about His presence and His power, His existence. So God reveals Himself to us through nature. So we continue to read through the psalm, and we see that in verse 7, the psalmist switches the word picture. In beginning in verse 7, he's not talking about the heavens or nature. But beginning in verse 7, he starts talking about the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. All of a sudden, now he reveals, he's showing us that God not only reveals himself through the heavens, but God also reveals himself through his word. God revealing himself through the heavens, by the way, is called general revelation. And God revealing himself through the word is called special revelation. That through the word, God tells us who he is. Through the word, God reveals what he's like. Through his word, God tells us what he expects. And so David, what's the author doing with what the author is saying? David is making the case in Psalm 19 that this powerful God who reveals himself through creation speaks to us on a personal level through his word. Pretty amazing statement. The heavens declare the glory of God, but it's the scriptures tell us how we can know this God personally. And so, to help you with this one, read the passage with discernment and sensitivity. I want to give you in the last few minutes six basic questions that will help you read any passage of scripture and kind of bring it to life. Six basic questions that will help you take any passage of Scripture, Old or New Testament. That you can ask any passage of Scripture and really better understand what the author is doing with what the author is saying. Alright, so here's the basic, basic questions, but so important. You can ask any, any text these six questions. Number one is this, who? And not just who, but who are the people in this text? You need to write that down. Who are these people that are in the text? And what is said about the people that are in this text? For example, in Joshua 2.1, it introduces us to a lady named Rahab. And it identifies her as a harlot whose name was Rahab. And from then on, she's known as Rahab the harlot. How would you like to have that hanging around your neck? And yet she's listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And so who is an important question. Who's in the text? Who are the people in the text and what is said about them? The second question is the word what. 
What is happening in this text? Write this down. What are the events and in what order? And you won't always be able to answer every question perfectly, but these are questions of observation. These are questions to help you dig deeper into understanding the text. We're we're still talking about observation. So the question, what, is a good observation question. What's happening in the text? What are the events? In what order? The the next question is where? Put a star beside this one. Because this one is so neglected, but so important. This gives you the location. Where are the people in this story? Where are they coming from? Where are they going? Where's the audience that's reading this text? If you're reading one of the letters, where's the audience? One of the the general epistles. Where is the author? When When you're reading Philippians, it's important to understand that where the author is. He's in prison when he writes that letter. Where's the author? Also, uh, in order to make the where question very uh, useful, you need to look in the back of your Bible and see if you have maps. If you don't, go to Bible Gateway or one of the other computer programs. They're all over the internet. You can find biblical maps. And whenever you're reading through a text, try to trace it on a map. That will help you so much. I can't... I can't highlight that enough for you. Trace what you're reading through a map. You will better understand where and how it applies to the story. The fourth question is the question when. This is the question of time. Again, this is another important question that sometimes gets overlooked. When? When when did the events in the text take place? Or write it down this way on your notes. Always determine what time it is. Write that down. Always determine what time it is. Let me show you this real quickly in Scripture. Mark one thirty-five. Mark one thirty-five. Mark one thirty-five. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Alright, so let's ask the question, when? When did this occur? Very early in the morning, while it was still dark. But there's even a deeper when than that one. When did this occur in the context of the story? Because here's here's what you need to know. This was not just a morning. This was the morning after the busiest day in his earthly ministry, at least recorded in Scripture. If you you read beginning in verse 14 all the way through verse 34, you'll see that this was an incredibly busy time, an incredibly busy day in the life of Jesus. In fact, look how the day ended, verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, In other words, after a very long day of ministry, after a very long day of teaching and healing, that evening when he wanted to rest, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, and the whole town gathered at the door. 
I mean, he didn't just have a few people there. He had the whole town at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons who would not let the, and would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. In other words, this was an incredibly long, hard, busy day. And then we read these words. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and went off to pray. Can I say this reverently? If there was ever a day when Jesus could have slept in, it would have been that day. But very early in the morning, while it was still dark, after the busiest day of His ministry, being up late, taking care of people all night long, He got up early the very next morning, and He went out to pray. Doesn't that give that a lot more meaning? So ask the when question. And don't settle for just the easiest answer, but look at it in its context. Number five, ask the why question. The why question. Why is this included? Why is this in Scripture? Why is it placed here? Why does it follow this story? Why does it precede this story? Why does this person say what they say? Or why is this person silent? A why question is a question that digs for the meaning of the text. In fact, the why question probes the text more than any other. Now, let me say this. I want to answer this real quickly. Let let me tell you something. You will not always get your answers to the why question. But you will always get more information by asking the why question. For example... Luke is the only gospel writer to tell us the parable of the prodigal son. Do you know that? Matthew didn't tell us about the prodigal son. Mark didn't. John didn't. Luke is the only gospel writer to tell us the story of the prodigal son. Why? Why? Or the book of Acts. Have you ever noticed how the book of Acts ends? There's not a good ending to the book of Acts. The book of Acts ends suddenly with Paul in Rome. We never find out what happened to him, at least not from the book of Acts. We never found out what happened to him. We didn't find out what happened to the church. We, we, didn't, understand, we didn't find out how, how the, the trial went. We didn't, it, the story just ends. Why? It looks like there ought to be a chapter 29. It ends at chapter 28. So why? Why did it end like that? And you will not always get the answer to your why questions. But you will always get more information because you ask the question. And then the last question is this one. So what? In other words, what difference does it really make? This is the question that gets us started doing something about what we've read. This is the question that helps us get towards the answer or towards the the goal of application. Remember, the Bible is not written to satisfy your curiosity. It was written to change your life. And so the why question is a very important, or so what question is a very important question. So what? How do I put this in my life? How do I live this out? Now, I, I, I was going to have a little exercise, but we're, we're out of time. Let me just give you a, something to do tonight or tomorrow or sometime, just as a little bit of homework. It'll be a fun little exercise. Uh, write down this reference, and then I'll be done. Ref- uh, John chapter 13, John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. 
I want you to read that text, and I want you to ask that text these six questions. This is, I'll just maybe whet your appetite a little bit. This is a text of the Last Supper, and it was the time when Judas decides to betray Jesus. We talked about Judas a little bit today. That's why I chose the text. It's a very interesting um, event. At the Last Supper, Judas decides to betray Jesus, and nobody there except Jesus and Judas, nobody there had a clue he was about to do what he did. And there's a powerful statement. We, we may come back to it later. There's a powerful statement that says Jesus left them that Jesus left them, and the, there's a last few words say, and it was night. It was not just dark outside, it was dark within him. As he went to betray his Savior. Alright, so that's your homework. Just look at that text, ask those six questions. And as you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, chapter by chapter, just ask those six questions. Father, thank you for your word. Help us better understand it. Help us to learn it so we can live it for your glory. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.